Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. A real-life video game. This is probably one of the most infamous memories the world has about the U.S. invasion of Iraq as we just marked its 20th anniversary. The footage shows U.S. soldiers on board an Apache helicopter launching an air attack on civilians in eastern Baghdad. Sajad Mustasha Toman was in the van. He was 12 years old. His father died instantly and his sister was severely wounded. My arms, my whole body were injured. I had splinters here in my leg. It was really painful. Ironically, Sajjah's life was saved by a U.S. soldier on duty in the neighborhood. At first I didn't even realized that it was the Apaches that shot the van. And I looked in through the driver's side of the van, and that's when I saw the little boy take like a exasperated, like a um, labored breath, like, and then come back, and it shocked me. I just started screaming out, the boy's alive, the boy's alive. And uh, I run over to him, and I scoop him up, and I have him, I'm, I'm cradling him. And I look down at the boy, and I'm saying, don't die, don't die, I've got you, you're gonna be okay. And, uh, hold on. American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people. Major combat operations in Iraq have ended. In the Battle of Iraq, the United States our allies have prevailed. Today, I can report that as promised, the rest of our troops in Iraq will come home by the end of the year. After nearly nine years, America's war in Iraq will be over. It's more than clear what this war was all about. I think the Americans knew that he didn't have these weapons. Certainly in the Pentagon, they knew and they didn't tell us. They didn't worry that he didn't have weapons. Mm. They were going to go for him anyway. They were into they, regime change. They wanted the regime to change and Saddam out. Saddam was out. But did freedom ensue as President Bush promised? Your nation will soon be free. Free to build a better life. No one in Iraq believes these things should be happening. The country is in a state of black depression and despair. If the U.S. and its allies had never entered Iraq, a country wouldn't now be facing these mounting problems. And thereon, Iraq's people are perfectly capable of rebuilding their country. 
but there is still no sign of it. Across Iraq, from north to south, east to west, we're stuck at the beginning of the process. The U.S. went into Iraq under the pretense of destroying weapons of mass destruction. However, they were using depleted uranium bombs, a highly destructive weapon, to achieve that alleged goal. Such as depleted uranium ammunition, which has brought catastrophic consequences in Iraq. It has high lethality and strong armor-piercing capabilities. In the Iraq war, the U.S. used 2,600 tons, which is 20 times the amount of depleted uranium ammunition deployed by the U.S. and NATO in Kosovo. It is estimated that more than 300,000 depleted uranium rounds have been fired during the invasion, the vast majority by U.S. forces. The first symptoms appeared in her legs. They started aching. She had a nerve test on her legs when she was two. It was a sign she had been affected by radioactive weapons. All we want is a normal life. The children are hurting, but they can't say where. He looked like he was about to die several times every day. He'd struggle to breathe before finally recovering. He eventually died of kidney failure. Once like this, and others the same, I'm at my wit's end. Twenty years later, it was still difficult for Ethan McCord to recall that period. He suffered severe post-traumatic stress disorder and tried to commit suicide more than once. We should have never been there. You can't tell somebody how to live their life and how to be and to change everything about them by force. You can't provide freedom and democracy through the barrel of a gun. It just doesn't happen. They didn't like Saddam Hussein because he was an ally of the Soviet Union and then of Russia. Believe me, the United States has supported enough coups to overthrow democratic governments. It goes in every direction. This is not about democracy. This is about geopolitics. It makes no sense to try to export democracy. It was manufactured. Like bombs, the United States has been parachuting American-style democracy worldwide, brandishing it as a recipe to save the world, something to be desired and copied by all. However, at home, how well does its democracy really fare? A poll conducted in January 2022 finds that 64% of Americans believe U.S. democracy is in crisis and at risk of failing. As a matter of fact, the genes of America's democracy were tainted by bloody suppression from the very beginning. Since the first batch of immigrants set foot on the continent, they had been robbing land from the natives. 
Before the arrival of white settlers in 1492, it is estimated that several million Native Americans lived in the area that would become the United States. By 1900, the number plummeted to less than a quarter of a million. We're talking about Iroquois, we're talking about Mohawks, we're talking about Pequots, we're talking about Sioux, we're talking about Seminoles, we're talking about Crees and Cherokees, etc. They all have a name. And uh, they had a very well-organized society. So we wanted more land and we kept encroaching uh, on the lands uh, of the indigenous. And when they started resisting, we started massacring them. All men are created equal. The Founding Fathers declared in the Declaration of Independence in 1776. They might have referred to white men only, though. It wasn't until 1865 that slavery was formally abolished, but minority groups continue to suffer systemic discrimination. In 1967, the boxing legend Muhammad Ali famously asked, why should they ask me to put on a uniform and go 10,000 miles from home and drop bombs and bullets on brown people in Vietnam, while so-called Negro people in Louisville are treated like dogs and denied simple human rights? More than 50 years later, African Americans are still three times more likely to be killed by police than their white counterparts. The killing of George Floyd sparked nationwide protests. I can't breathe! I can't move! I've been waiting the whole time! Ah, ah, ah. Whose lives matter? Black lives matter! Whose lives matter? Black lives matter! This ghastly picture wouldn't be complete without mentioning gun ownership and the National Rifle Association, or NRA. Clearly, America has uh, a gun fetish. We embrace violence. Look at our movies. Look at our our pop culture. Guns are everywhere, and they're glorified. They're 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 held in higher esteem than than many other things in our culture, and that's because of this notion of American rugged individualism. And this American myth is built on a lot of uh, preconceived notions and on a lot of bad information. Guns typically are not the solution to these types of problems. Guns cause more problems. And the NRA is making things more difficult. The NRA is still very influential, not necessarily from a campaign donor standpoint. They still hand out money a lot to the to, to Republicans and make sure that their voices are heard at Capitol Hill. But in terms of mobilizing voters. And with blood and guns come money, big money. Republican Senator from Ohio Mark Hanna is quoted to have said in the late 19th century that there are two things that are important in politics. The first is money, and I can't remember what the second one is. What happens when a congressional representative gets elected? Uh, first day in office, they start making phone calls to the potential donors for the next election coming up. Out of that comes legislation, which the representative later signs, maybe even looks at occasionally. I wonder if he can get off the phone to the donors. Uh, what do you think, what kind of system do you expect to emerge from this? But in recent times, clearly, the United States is not functioning as a democracy. It is functioning as a plutocracy. And the sky is the limit. 
The total cost of 2022 state and federal midterm elections reached over 16.7 billion US dollars, setting a new record. That's more than the combined GDP of over 70 countries in the world in 2021. Big money aside, are the voices of ordinary Americans being heard? One person, one vote sounds like a nice idea, but does it really make a difference? It has become increasingly obvious over the past decades that voting for the Democrats or the Republicans is mostly about choosing between the devil and the deep blue sea or being caught between Scylla and Charybdis. Public trust in the U.S. Congress has reached an all-time low, with a miserly 7% of Americans expressing a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in the institution, according to a Gallup poll released in the summer of 2022. U.S. House speakership, which ended with Kevin McCarthy's winning after 15 rounds of voting, might reveal the true nature of party politics, that is, political stalemate. Unfortunately, I don't see either of the two dominant political parties being able or willing to change that, largely because they're funded by many of the same powerful economic interests that benefit from these policies. As a result, government shutdowns have become a seasonal nightmare. From December 2018 to January 2019, the U.S. government has been shut down for 35 days, the longest period in history. The genes of America's democracy have been further corrupted with dodgy practices. They have exotic names, gerrymandering, filibuster and carpetbagger, to name but a few. One person, one vote has become a hall of mirrors. And to cap it all, you have the media, including social media, which put a nice spin on the fairy tale. In the United States, the media is considered the fourth estate or gatekeeper of democracy. But in fact, they've always served financial interests and party politics. And since the Trump presidency, things got worse. After Pulitzer Prize-winning American journalist Seymour Hersh broke the story that the U.S. could be behind the Nord Stream pipeline explosions, there was deafening silence on the mainstream liberal media in the U.S. Hersh was dismissed as uncredible for citing one single source, albeit with direct knowledge to the operational planning. I think the Trump years really terrified the American liberals and the left, if you will. They, they were ter terrified. And you had a situation where there was Fox News on one side and the New York Post, conservative papers favorable to Trump. And the rest were absolutely against anything, uh, all things Trump. And I think that the, the fallout is now they have a Democrat uh, who largely won because he wasn't Trump. It's not because they're attacking me because of me and the source. They're attacking me because of what the story says. If I wrote a single source say about something wonderful that happened in the Biden administration that nobody knew about, I wouldn't be attacked. <laughs> I would, it would be all over the, the papers. We don't have a well-informed citizenry now. It's hard for them to believe that they would manufacture evidence 20 years ago to justify, in quotes, a war of aggression. So we're left again with the American people at the mercy of people on CNN, people on all the other uh, network as well as cable um, uh, broadcast and other networks. 
they are have a 2000 year plan to destroy this country. And it's not just on TV. While touting freedom of expression and speech, the U.S. government also seeks to control international public opinion through manipulating social media. According to The Intercept, U.S. Department of Defense has used Twitter, which includes U.S. government-generated news portals and memes, to wrong its online influence campaign to shape opinions in Yemen, Syria, Iraq, Kuwait, and beyond. Since the war broke out in Ukraine, public discussion on mainstream media was far from being free and balanced. I have not in my years seen this simplification, this banalization of something hugely complex as has gone on the last year or the last uh, right. eight, nine years concerning Ukraine. I have never seen so much lying and so much one-sidedness and so little intellectual input in what is reported. I believed everything that I was taught growing up. I feel used. I feel used for being in Iraq. We all enter this world with a universal greeting. <laughs> we then learn to speak. <laughs> Though our languages, cultures and traditions may differ, we still share one thing in common. We have hope for humanity and the Donated world. An additional General Railway Company Hear the difference. Join our global network to connect with the world. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. Twenty years later, Washington's attempt to change Iraq's destiny has failed miserably. But it was only one example of the perils of grafting a flawed system onto others by force. In 2001, the U.S. launched a war in Afghanistan in response to the 9-11 attacks, claiming that the then-Taliban government provided shelter to the terrorist group Al-Qaeda. After 20 years of occupation, the U.S. conducted a botched withdrawal in 2021, and the Taliban regained power. According to the think tank New America, since 2002, the U.S. has carried out nearly 400 airstrikes in Yemen. In 2011, together with its allies, the U.S. launched the Operation Odyssey Dawn and overthrew Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi. Libya today remains a divided state. Shortly after the Syrian war broke out in 2011, the U.S. and its Western allies strongly backed opposition militants against the Syrian government. By 2017, the U.S.-led coalition has conducted over 11,000 airstrikes in Syria, according to U.S. Department of Defense. Brown University in the U.S. estimates that at least 929,000 people have died in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, and other post-9-11 wars, including nearly 390,000 civilians. At least 38 million people have been displaced. These wars against terror have cost the U.S. around 8 trillion U.S. dollars over 20 years. Has that made the U.S. or the Middle East any safer? 
A country that has toppled so many governments in Africa, that has led so many coups in Africa and other parts of the world, a country that has killed so many of our leaders in Africa and other parts of the world, today are coming to teach us about democracy. If you have no respect for the dignity of others, if you have no respect for the sovereignty of other countries, you cannot claim to be a champion of democracy. When a person has a hammer, they think everything is a nail. Uh, so the U.S. has a hammer. There's no doubt it's got a big military. And it thinks that it can pound on the head of anyone and get a solution. And it never works. Who could be next? It's obvious that the U.S. has beefed up the democracy versus authoritarianism narrative. And this time, the target seems to be China. Democracy. 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 During the Cold War with the former Soviet Union, the world was brought to the edge of nuclear war because of ideological confrontation between the two camps. There are many people in the world who really don't understand, or say they don't, what is the great issue between the free world and the communist world. With President Trump in the Oval Office, the ideological approach reared its ugly head again, together with the China threat drumbeat. We, the freedom-loving nations of the world, must induce China to change in more creative and assertive ways. Maybe it's time for a new grouping of like-minded nations, a new alliance of democracies. President Trump launched a massive trade war against China, which failed miserably. The Biden administration took a less transactional stance in foreign policy than his predecessor, but ideology took its center stage. Our task is to prove once again that democracy can meet urgent challenges, create opportunity, advance human dignity. And the Biden administration has been translating this approach into concrete measures. The US-EU Trade and Technology Council was formed to counter China's trade and technological progress. The Quad, a strategic security grouping of the US, India, Japan and Australia, has been upgraded to the head of state level. Another James Bond-like acronym for you, AUKUS, a security partnership was set up to provide nuclear power submarines to Australia by the US and the UK, and the US has been pushing for an Asia-Pacific version of NATO, all these with China in mind. It's not about democracy or not democracy, it's about what the US state views as its interests. The interest could be security interest, it could be geopolitical competition with China or with Russia, uh, it could be financial interest. The Biden administration has put increasing number of Chinese companies under unilateral sanctions, citing threat to the U.S. national security. What we are doing, we need to continue to move towards a strategy of being more strategic and more targeted with a with a laser focus always to protect our national security. Where does it all lead? The Biden administration has rammed down people's throat that the U.S. does not seek a new Cold War, that it was not about containing or transforming China. But is that the reality?
We're not looking for a new Cold War. When President Biden says he doesn't seek a new Cold War, what he's trying to do rhetorically is say, I'm not responsible for the new Cold War. The Chinese are responsible for the new Cold War. What the United States wants to do is make sure it remains the world's leading country in terms of developing cutting edge technologies and making sure that China is not a serious rival on that front. In 2021, the Biden administration convened the first so-called summit for democracy. During the opening session, he stressed that as a global community for democracy, we have to stand up for the values that unite us. The intention of the summit for democracy is crystal clear to counter China and Russia. In fact, I'd like to see it as a kind of performance art, since the economic and trade cards the U.S. played against China have yielded pretty much no impact. As the U.S. becomes increasingly paranoid about competing against China, one wonders just how much will America's foreign policy be driven by ideology instead of reason. I'm just not questioning their intelligence. These are all people uh, Tony Blinken and uh, the Secretary of State, uh, the one who didn't go to China because to meet his counterpart because of a balloon. Yeah. And Jake Sullivan, who is the National Security Advisor, all have high degrees right. and the, the Undersecretary of State, plenty of intelligence. It's just what they're so driven by, I think, um, uh, 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 hatred of all things, particularly Putin, and also communism per se. They're so cold warriors. 20 years on, Iraq remains a country struggling to stand on its feet after being ravaged in the name of democracy, a democracy with defective, deadly genes. Anthony Blinken said all countries should be free to chart their own paths without coercion. Do as you say then, America, so the world can be truly democratic. The strong wind was howling and whistling. He was the first Chinese citizen to graduate from Yale University in the mid-19th century. I was born on the 17th of November. She had prominent features. Three of us were old enough to lend a helping hand. He navigated between two vastly different cultures and moved further to realize his dream and promote understanding between the people of China and the United States. Ye Minxing was a native of Hamyang. I realized no danger. China is really awakening. Come and join us in discovering the incredible journey of Yong Wang in his autobiography, My Life in China and America. Check out the Audible stories on radio.cgtn.com and all major podcast platforms. Just search for the podcast Books and Beyond and find My Life in China and America.